In the name of the Father, and of the Son, of the Holy Spirit, on God, Amen. Our Bible study tonight from Psalm 99. This psalm has no title in Hebrew text. Therefore, there is no indication to the authorship or the date. But many commentators attribute the psalm to David the prophet without any evidence because David wrote most of the psalms. There are some psalms we call them enthronement psalms. Enthronement psalms celebrates God as king and affirm his lordship over all creation. So what are the instrument psalms? Psalm 93, 95, 96, 97, 98, and 99. So there are six psalms, we call them enthronement psalms. So this psalm is the last of these six psalms, and as I explained, enthronement psalms celebrate God as king and affirm his lordship over all creation. This psalm also is divided into three sections. Each section ends with exaltation of the king and affirmation of his holiness. Each section ends with like a doxology for the king, king of kings, and affirmation of his holiness. It is a triple proclamation of God's holiness. As we see in verse 3, ends by, he is holy. Verse 5, ends by, he is holy. Verse 9, ends for, the Lord our God is holy. So, it is a triple proclamation of God's holiness. And maybe it points to the Holy Trinity. Because this threefold repetition of God's holiness remind us with the angelic refrain in the vision of Isaiah. We read it in Isaiah chapter 6 when he heard the seraphim saying holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. So the refrain in these three verses 3, 5, 9 the Lord is holy may possibly have been intended to be sung as a liturgical response. So if this psalm is chanted in liturgical worship, so at the end of each section, the congregation chant and say, the Lord is holy, as a response, as a refrain. The character of Psalm 99 is one of reverence and yet intimacy. So, yes, we worship God in awe and reverence, but also there is intimate relationship with God. As it's repeated several times, the Lord is our God. So it is a relational expression. We are his children, we are his servant, he's our God. And the awesomeness and holiness of God 
implies that we must bow in submission and obedience before him because he is the revered God. So we bow in submission and obedience before him. Also, we are encouraged to see God rightly, to stand in awe of his holiness and majesty. So when we understand before whom we are standing, then we stand in awe of his holiness and majesty. There are three psalms. Each one starts by the Lord reigns, but some differences. The first psalm is Psalm 93. The Lord reigns, he is clothed with majesty. This is the last psalm in the sixth hour of the Agbay. Then Psalm 97, the Lord reigns, let the earth rejoice. That is the second psalm in ninth hour of the Agbay. Psalm 99, the Lord reigns, let the people tremble. That is the fourth psalm in the ninth hour of the Agbay. We need to notice these three psalms have the same beginning, the Lord reigns. The first psalm, Psalm 93, he affirmed his royalty. He is clothed with majesty. Second psalm, 97, let the earth rejoice. Third psalm, let the people tremble. St. Augustine actually has a beautiful comment on these three psalms. He says, as sons of the church and well instructed in the school of Christ through all the books of our ancient fathers who wrote the words of God and the great things of God that their wish was to consult for our good who were to live in this period believers in Christ so all this introduction he say we the believers we are trained in the school of Christ by our fathers who wrote the word of God with one goal that to consult for our good he continues who at a seasonable time came unto us the first time in humility at the second distant to come in exaltation now therefore our whole design is when we hear a psalm a prophet or the law all of which was written before our Lord Jesus Christ came in the flesh to see Christ there so he's saying Jesus came or he comes twice. First time he came in humility, but second time in the second coming of Christ, he is coming in exaltation. So when we read any psalm or a prophet or even the law of Moses, all of these writings were written before Christ. We need to search for Christ there, to see Christ in every prophecy, to see Christ in every psalm, to see Christ in every law, to see Christ there, to understand the Christ there. Attend therefore, beloved, to this psalm with me, and let us herein seek Christ. 
And actually, St. Augustine, in his commentary over all the 150 psalms, in each psalm, he actually spoke about Christ. He saw Christ in every single psalm. As I told you, this psalm, it's easily divided into three sections. One to three, the greatness of God. Four and five, the righteous character of his rule. He's a king, but he is righteous in his ruling. From verse six to nine, God revealed in forgiveness and holiness. So let's start by verse one. The Lord reigns. Let the peoples tremble. He dwells between the cherubim. Let the earth be moved. The Lord reigns, we know he reigned or he established his kingdom on earth here, spiritual kingdom on earth on the day of crucifixion. So on the day of crucifixion, there was overthrow of the reign of the evil and establishments of God's kingdom of goodness, righteousness, justice, and truth. That's why the reigning of the Lord is worthy to be celebrated and praised again and again. For the third time, a psalm begins with this phrase, the Lord reigns, as I told you, Psalm 93, 97, and 99. When God manifests his sovereignty, the nations must tremble with awe, and all the earth must confess his majesty. The creator and savior in his greatness, holiness, and mercy is above every earthly reality. That's why verse 2, the Lord is great in Zion, and he is high above all the peoples. He dwells between the cherubim, if you remember, on the Holy of the Holies, the Ark of Covenant. The cover of the Ark of Covenant has two cherubims. And God used to appear actually between the two cherubims and spoke to the high priest from there. And the cover of the Ark of Covenant is called the throne, the throne of God. Because in heaven, as Ezekiel saw, and also St. John the Beloved, so the throne of God is carried by the four incorporeal living creatures. He is carried by the cherubim. So God sits upon the cherubim. He dwells between the cherubim. So he says, the Lord reigns, let the peoples tremble. He dwells between the cherubim, let the earth be moved. The Lord is great in Zion, in his church, and he is high above all the people. The Lord enthroned in heavenly glory before all the peoples and the earth, That's why he is worthy of 
all praise. God is enthroned in his sanctuary. Yes, heaven and earth belong to God, but he is especially revered and honored in his sanctuary. So the psalmist had in mind the heavenly sanctuary of God or the earthly representation of it, the tabernacle of meeting or the temple of Solomon or the church of the New Testament. Both are true and either one fits, whether the heavenly or the earthly. And we, if we wish to become a throne of God, because you are the temple of God and the Holy Spirit abide in you, we are committed to have our souls filled with the true spiritual knowledge and the heavenly wisdom. So if you want to be true throne of God, you need to be filled with the heavenly wisdom and the spiritual knowledge. And according to St. Augustine, if there is love in the heart, God will dwell in it, because God is love. His own people will rejoice before him with trembling. Yes, we rejoice, but we tremble. That's why the deacon several times in the Divine Liturgy say, worship God in fear and trembling. Let the people tremble can refer to his own people or also can refer to the nations. So it may be understood of the people that are enemies to Christ who would not have him to reign in their heart. Though he shall wither they will or not, he will reign over the whole creation in his second coming. They will sooner or later tremble for fear of him and his righteous judgment. As we read in the book of Revelation, even his enemies trembled before him. The holiness of God's name makes it truly great to his people and terrible to his enemies. So when we stand before God, his people rejoice, but his enemies tremble. When we tremble, not before him, his children, not the fear of the slaves, but we tremble because we know his greatness and his awesomeness. And God will establish his kingdom in spite of his enemies. Let those who oppose him tremble for the consequences. Yes, God is present in heaven and in all the earth, but he has a special regard for Zion, the temple, the church, the city of Jerusalem. So, primarily, God is great among his faithful ones in the church in Zion. It is among his own believers and those who worship him his church, the spiritual Zion, embraces and sanctifies them. He has manifested his power and glory in an special manner. But after he said the Lord is great in Zion, he said he is high above all the peoples, all the peoples. Primarily, he is great among his children. Secondly, great 
or high among the nations who do not acknowledge him as king, but are forced to tremble before him in the last day. The other people who are proud before him, he is high above them, and they will never encounter him unless they humble themselves before him. Verse 2 is saying that God who rules in Zion, in the church, also rules all the nations of the earth. St. Augustine comments on Zion and says, But now that it is clear that Zion is the city of God, what is the city of God but the Holy Church? For men who love one another and who love their God who dwells in them constitute a city unto God. Because a city is held together by some law. Any city should have law. Their very law, the city of God, is love. And that very love is God. For openly it's written, God is love. He therefore, who is full of love, is full of God. The person who is full of love is full of God. Many believers who are full of love constitute a city full of God. That city of God is called Zion, the church. Therefore, the church, therefore, is Zion. In it, God is great. Verse 3, when we gather together in Zion, in the church, let them praise your great and awesome name. Praises is essential part in our worship. But why? He is holy. He is holy. So this is a fundamental attribute of God that we need to understand. The word holy literally means to be separated. So when it describes, it can describe someone, a person or something, when he is set apart from other people or things. For example, if a consecrated servant, consecrated mean he or she is holy, they separated themselves from the life of everyone else. The same way when we consecrate the church, consecrate means make it holy, we separate it from the rest of the world. So an object like church, chalice, uh, beaten, mastir, an object can be holy if it is set apart for sacred service. A person is holy or consecrated if he is set apart for God's will and purpose, like priesthood, consecrated servant, monks, nuns. But the holiness of God refers to his absolute purity. So the word holy for us means I'm separated to the service of the Lord. But the word holy for God means he is absolutely pure. He is completely without sin and apart from it. As we read in 1 John chapter 1 verse 5, God is light, and in him there is no darkness at all. Also, 
in Job 34 verse 10 Therefore listen to me you men of understanding far be it from God to do wickedness and from the Almighty to commit iniquity. In Habakkuk chapter 1 verse 12 and 13 Are you not from everlasting O Lord my God my Holy One? You are of purer eyes than to behold evil. So God is revealed as separated from everything unjust, untrue, evil. In his character, he is completely holy. Therefore, in all his dealing with men, he is righteous. God's holiness is part of everything he is and he does. God's holiness is essential part of everything he is, who he is, and what he does. If we get a glimpse of God as holy, what would be our response? Our only response is to worship him with reverence, to praise him. That's why he rightfully receives the praise because he is holy. By the way, in the Divine Liturgy, when Abuna says, let us praise the Lord, or let us give thanks to the Lord, the response, it is meet and right. What does it mean, it's meet and right? It is proper. It is fitting. It is the right thing to do. Is what we should do is to give thanks to Him. Some people prefer to say, worthy and just. But worthy, when I say he is worthy of this position, means he earned it. But for God, he did not earn it. It is meet, it is proper, it is fitting. That is the right thing to do, to give thanks to him, to praise him. That's why in the Divine Liturgy of, of St. Gregory and St. Cyril, we say, meet and right, it is truly fitting, proper, meet and right to praise you, to worship you, to glorify you, to hem you, etc. That is the right thing to do. Verse 4. The king's strength also loves justice. For the world or the secular kings, they abuse their strength and they are unjust to their people. Although the strength of any king is to love justice, the king's strength also loves justice. That's why for God, you have established equity. You have executed justice and righteousness in Jacob. God is strong. But he does not abuse his strength and his power like the rulers of the world. No. He loves justice. He rules with equity, fairness, justice, and righteousness. It's comforting to know that God is just and impartial. Usually, most of us who have concern regarding people in power because people in power can abuse the power. But when we know that God loves justice, equity, 
This gives comfort to us when we know he is just and impartial. So his power is perfectly balanced with his justice and righteousness. His rule is incomparable and he is always, always righteous and fair. As we read in Isaiah chapter 11 from verses 3 to 5, And he shall not judge by the sight of his eyes, nor decide by the hearing of his ears, but with righteousness he shall judge the poor and decide with equity for the meek of the earth. Righteousness shall be the belt of his loins and faithfulness the belt of his waist. An important implication of justice is that as just judge, he cannot overlook sin. Sin must be punished. That's why a big concern for those who are teaching God is only love, God is only love, there is no punishment, there is nothing called punishment. Actually, they are speaking against the justice of God. They are speaking against his righteousness. Because if he is just, then he should not overlook sin. Sin must be punished. For those who are made right before God through Jesus, we are righteous through the Lord Jesus Christ. They celebrate the justice of God. But those who remain in sin, denying to accept the Lord Jesus Christ, should fear the justice of God, because sin must be punished. That's why to say cross is only just love, there is no bearing the punishment of death, that's actually against the understanding the righteousness and justice of God. Yes, as there is love in crucifixion, in the theology of the cross, for God so loved the world, but also there is the punishment of sin, death you shall surely die, is fulfilled in the crucifixion of our Lord Jesus Christ. Here he said you have executed justice and righteousness in Jacob. Why he used the word Jacob? Jacob can be a representation of the nation of Israel, which is common in the book of Psalms. Or Jacob can be a representation of all the believers. But I think that David used the word Jacob here to denote something. We know that Jacob, one of his weaknesses, he was a deceiver. He took the blessing from his father by deceiving him. So that's why the psalmist is making a contrast. God has executed justice and righteousness in Jacob, who was known as a deceiver. Verse 5, Exalt the Lord our God and worship at his footstool. He is holy. What is his footstool? 
footstool can be the earth, as we read in Isaiah 61 verse 1 and Matthew 5 35. Or can be the sanctuary, the church, as we read in Psalm 132 verse 7, Isaiah 60 13, Lamentation 2 1. Or can be the ark, as we read in 1 Chronicles 28 verse 2, the Ark of Covenant. It seems to refer to the Ark. But footstool pictures, when he says here, exalt the Lord our God and worship at his footstool. So what is the image here? Pictures bowing before the throne of a king in total submission. So God is seated on his throne and we are bowing at his footstool in total submission to him. Because our king is the righteous judge of all. So why we, we bow or we kneel or prostrate at his footstool? Because he is the righteous judge of all. That's why we must submit our heart completely to him so that we worship him in sincerity and truth. Because God has executed justice and righteousness, the Psalms ends this part with this intensifying word, exalt the Lord our God for his righteousness and justice and worship at his footstool, he is holy. St. Augustine says, magnify him truly, magnify him well, let us praise him, let us magnify him, who has wrought the very righteousness which we have. The righteousness which we have that we received in baptism. The righteousness of God. Who wrote it in us himself. For who but he who justified us. Who justified us? It is him. Wrote righteousness in us. It is him. For of Christ it is said. Who justifies the ungodly? So understanding the power, holiness, and goodness of God should lead us to exalt Him and to humbly worship Him. So the view of God's justice is meant to show His holiness and lead His people to worship. So when He spoke about the righteousness of God, in order to understand why He said He is holy, and also lead us to worship him and praise him. He is the holy judge and he is worthy of all praise and exaltation. When we draw near to God to worship him, our hearts ought to be filled with high thoughts of him and we ought to exalt him in our souls. That's why he said exalt him before worship him. Exalt him means let your heart and mind be filled of high thoughts of him and we ought to exalt him in our souls. We ought to be in awe of his holiness as the seraphim themselves when they saw God enthroned on his throne they cried, holy, holy, holy Lord of hosts, heaven and earth are full of your glory and honor. Verse 6 Moses and Aaron were among his priests and Samuel was among those 
who called upon his name. They called upon the Lord, and he answered them. So after sending in awe of God as the holy king and judge, this third section is remarkable. Why? Because in this third section we see that the same God who reigns over all also enters in fellowship with his people. He is called our God. That's why I told you this son is not only a son of reverence but also a son of intimacy, a relational son. And the sons use Moses, Aaron, and Samuel as a representative example, how God is in relationship with us. He sent Moses and Aaron among his priests. Actually, it was Aaron the high priest. But why he said Moses and Aaron among his priests? What is the role of priesthood? The priesthood is intercessor between God and man. As I explained before, the prophet delivers message from God to people. The priest delivers message from people to God. So the priest stands before the altar interceding on behalf of his people. But the prophet delivers message from God to the people. These three, Moses, Aaron, and Samuel, were intercessors in past time. Moses and Aaron led the Israelites out of Egypt and established national worship through the tabernacle. Samuel came later, but he was the last of Israel's judges who anointed the first king, Saul, and also anointed David. Moses, although he is not called a priest, but he performed many priestly acts by the appointment of God. For example, sprinkling the blood of the covenant at Mount Sinai, setting in order the tabernacle, even consecrating Aaron as high priest and his sons as priests. Also, Moses exercised this priestly function to be intercessor on behalf of his people when Israel was fighting with Amalek and he was on the mountain and he stretched his hand in prayer, and when he stretched his hand, actually Joshua was able to win. Also, when they sinned by worshiping the calf, Moses interceded on behalf of his people, and he said, "If you don't," for he said to God, "Forgive them their sins, or remove my name from the book of life." Also, he interceded on behalf of his people when they murmured on the return of the spies, as we read in Numbers chapter 14, verse 13. Samuel was not a priest also, but a Levite. He lived in Mount Ephraim, but he was a Levite, as we read in First Chronicles chapter 6, uh, from verse 16 to 28. 
But again, God gives Samuel some priestly function, like anointed David, anointing Saul, offering a sacrifice. And we should not be surprised, because as St. Paul said, no one takes this office except he who is called by God. So if God called Moses to do some priestly function, God is the greatest, greatest high priest, the ultimate high priest. And if God asked Samuel to do some priestly function, he is the ultimate high priest. It is in his authority to ask Samuel or to ask Moses to perform priestly function. Also, Samuel was a powerful intercessor with God, a righteous man whose fervent prayer availed much as we read in 1 Samuel chapter 7, 8 and 9, and also in Sirach 46, verse 16. So these three ones, they prayed and called upon his name, and God revealed himself. He answered them. In the first verses of this psalm, the psalmist attributes sacred title to God. For example, God is king, great, supreme, high, awesome, holy, powerful, just. And also, he said, God is holy three times. In biblical language, this term indicates his divinity above all. Yes, he is superior to us, but he is infinitely above every one of his creatures. But this superiority does not make him an impassive and distant God. When he is called upon, he responds. In other religion, God is high, God is superior, God is above us, and that's it. But in the revelation of God in Christianity, yes, God is high, he is superior to all of us. But he is with us, Emmanuel, and he is within us. You are the temple of God and the Holy Spirit abides in you. So after he spoke about how God is high and awesome and holy and great, now from verse 6, God is a relational God, in relationship with us. When we call upon him, he responds. So after contemplating the absolute perfection of the Lord, the Psalms reminds us that God is in constant touch with his people, like Moses, Aaron, and Samuel, his mediators. He spoke to the prophet, and he was heard, and also they called upon his name, and he heard them. Then in verse 7, he spoke to them in the cloudy pillar, when actually they were walking in the wilderness of Sinai. They kept his testimony and the ordinance he gave them. Yea, you answered them, O Lord our God, you were to them God who forgives, though you took vengeance on their deeds. So, 
In His holiness, God interacts with us, listens to us, answers us, forgives us, and also takes vengeance on their deeds. So yes, He takes vengeance on their deeds, but also He forgives. God is divine, but His people can have a personal relationship with Him. God is not isolated from us. He spoke to them in the cloudy pillar, verse 7, referring to Israel's experience at Sinai when they wandered in the wilderness and where God gave His law. The pillar of cloud was the physical representation of God's presence with them. Then the psalmist mentioned something very important. They kept his testimony and the ordinance he gave them. So the psalmist noted the general obedience of Moses, Aaron, and Samuel. Even when they sin, they repent. They kept, although not perfectly, but sincerely, from a principle of love and with a view to the glory of God. So they kept his commandments because they loved him and also because they want to glorify God in their life. Moses was known as the servant of the Lord, as we read in Deuteronomy 34, verse 5. In Hebrews 3, verse 5, St. Paul spoke about Moses. He was faithful in all his house as a servant. Aaron, we read in Psalm 106 verse 16 he was the saint of the Lord the saint of the Lord so why he said they kept his testimony this is added not only to praise Moses, Aaron and Samuel but for the instruction of the Israelites and all of us to teach us that God would not hear the prayer of them who did not keep his commandments So when we keep his commandments sincerely, God will listen to our prayer. Also another revelation about God in verse 8, God who forgive. It isn't clear if the ones referred to here are the priests mentioned, Moses, Aaron, and Samuel, or if it's referring to the people they prayed for, and whether God forgive Moses, Aaron, and Samuel, or forgive the congregation on whose behalf Moses, Aaron, and Samuel interceded before God. But most commentators said you took vengeance on their deeds there refers to Moses, Aaron, and Samuel, or to Israel deeds. In other words, Through the intercession of Moses, Aaron, and Samuel, God's forgiveness extended to the nation, to the whole nation. Although the Lord still imposed penalties for national disobedience, He forgave, but He disciplined. It's also true that Moses, Aaron, and Samuel were disciplined by God in some way or another. For example, Moses and Aaron angered God at the water of Meribah 
That's why both of them did not enter the promised land. Aaron angered God by sanctioning the idolatry of the golden calf. But God forgave both of them these and other sins, but not without inflicting punishment for the sins. Like David, God forgave him, but he gave him discipline. So this verse shows the balance between God's faithfulness in answering prayer, his mercy in forgiving sin, and his righteousness in his punishment for sin, so that we do not take his mercy lightly. These three things are very important. He answered our prayer, he forgave our sins, but he also disciplined and punished our sins. So this is the lesson which its history has taught it concerning God's character. So when you study the history of God's dealing with the people, you will learn about how he answers our prayer, how he forgives our sins, how he punishes our sins. Through all the history of his people has been faithful, both in forgiveness and in vengeance, and that because he is holy. St. Augustine says, Consider, my brethren, what he has taught us here. Attend. God is angry with him whom, when he sins, he scourges not. So, God is angry, but when we sin, God forgives our sins. He does not scourge us. For unto him to whom he is truly forgiven, because God forgives our sin. He not only remits sin, that they may not injure him in future. So, he does not only forgive sins, but also give discipline, so that this discipline will help us in repentance, but also chasten him that he delight not in continual sin. So why he chasten us, why he discipline us? Because God does not delight in continual sin. The last verse, verse 9, Exalt the Lord our God and worship at his holy hill, for the Lord our God is holy. The Lord our God is holy. So the psalmist repeats the refrain, He is holy, that was mentioned in verses 3 and 9. And God's holiness is proclaimed. Later, in visions from heaven, like with the prophet Isaiah, chapter 6, and the Apostle John in Revelation chapter 4, verse 8, we hear this three-time declaration of holiness combined into a single sentence, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. His nature is holy, and he is glorious in the perfection of his holiness. Therefore, to be praised and exalted. His name is holy and so reverent, therefore to be worshipped. So he is holy, therefore he is exalted. He is holy, therefore he is worshipped. So the repetition was with some slight variation. For example, in verse 5, he said, worship at his footstool. Here in verse 9 he said, Worship at his holy hell. 
instead of saying in verse 5, He is holy, He gives a more intimate appeal by saying, The Lord our God is holy. As we read in Hebrews chapter 12, verse 22-24, contrast or compare the experience of Israel at Mount Sinai with our privilege. St. Paul said, But you have come to Mount Zion and to the city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem, to an innumerable company of angels, to the general assembly and church of the firstborn who are registered in heaven, to God the judge of all, to the spirit of just men made perfect, to Jesus the mediator of the new covenant, and to the blood of sprinkling that speaks better things than that of Abel. That is our experience which is totally different than the experience of people in Mount Zainal. So the clearest epiphany of Christ's glory was in Mount Calvary when he was crucified. That's why some scholars say it is Mount Zion. God came among us above all in his Son, who became one of us, Jesus became one of us, Emmanuel, to instill in us his life and his holiness. This is why we now approach God with confidence and not with fear, like the old covenant. Indeed, in Christ, we have the high priest, holy, innocent, and unblemished, separated from sinners, as we read in Hebrews chapter 7 and verse 25. Therefore, he is also able to save to the uttermost those who come to God through him, through Jesus, since he always lives to make intercession for them. Hebrews 7, 25. This concludes Psalm 99. Glory be to God forever and ever. Amen.